Welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Lucas Stock. And I'm Jens Nelson. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Happy Saturday to you. We're recording on a Saturday again. Always It's a always beautiful, a beautiful Wisconsin day. <laughs> How, how cold is it there? So I, I when I went to the gas station like an hour and a half ago, it was 28. Um, okay. I don't have my watch on, so I can't see what the weather is currently. But it's been like in the single digits for what feels like forever, maybe like two or three weeks at this point. So today is like a breath of fresh air. It's like almost short weather, like shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we've been in like the, like we had with the big snowstorm, we got hit with like it actually snowed um stuff shut down on tuesday like work Mm. was closed school was closed all that kind of stuff uh and it's been until today it's been in like the 20s and 30s which is by far the coldest it's been here all winter that's insane (laughs) um so you know it's quite a quite a winter you know and obviously i don't mean to make light of people who are legitimately suffering through a crisis right now we are fortunate not to be in that situation and in Birmingham, but, um, definitely quite an extreme winter, I think for, yeah for just this t- this area of the country and, and not just this area of the country, but just, it's been so frigid and so cold and, and lots of snow and everything all over the place. So well, quite that's really a, interesting. Cause quite like, I year. feel like that's with very unintentionally ties into our conversation that we're having today. Um, I swear we don't plan it like this. Like it's not like we sit here and we're like, how can we we're tie things smart. together? Right. <laughs> but I'm. It's, as you've probably already seen from the title, we're talking about suffering. We're talking about sickness and death. Um, in a, in a very real sense, like this, the the weather that's been happening this this um, this winter, um, or if we just look back at the last year, 2020, 2021, um, I saw a meme this week that joked like, oh, it'd be really great if I could stop living through like historic events. You know, <laughs> we've, we had these pandemics and um, crazy presidential elections. And I don't know, it just feels like every week there's some other new historic never happened before type of event. But um, it, it's interesting as I've contemplated, you know, what's going on in Texas, especially, but across our whole country. Um, the effects that something like weather can have because the weather that's happening to me as a Wisconsinite is nothing unusual. Like the weather that we've had here, like I look out my window and I I don't know the the measurable amount of snow that we've had this year, but it's more than the past several years. I know that for sure. Um, The cold that we've had has been a lot colder than previous years as well. Um, But like we're all prepared for it. Things don't shut down. Like we've had one snow day all winter in our area for for schools like we we got like two feet of snow in one night so the schools were closed the next day um but like you know we don't have we don't necessarily have houses that like have pipes bursting and no power no heat uh grocery stores are ransacked like we up here the people that are used to this sort of thing are prepared for this sort of thing whereas down in texas uh it seems like on a large scale there's this measure of being unprepared, whether it's um, infrastructure, whether it's individually as family. Um, Like I have friends who are literally boiling snow 
for a couple of days because they didn't have access to water because the water was off and stores didn't have water bottles and it was too dangerous to travel. Like in a sense, like that's, that's a small microcosm of even like the Christian life and even wider than that, the human life we, we experience, like there, there are some people who are prepared for these things that come upon us. And then there are others who are unprepared and have to learn to adapt, to adjust, to uh, to be comfortable in the messiness of this life. And um, so I don't know. I thought that was a good tie-in to to this conversation because uh, I don't know. I don't. I can't remember exactly where we where we came up with the idea for this episode. But um, I, I know a while ago I had mentioned wanting to have a conversation about me as being a diabetic and how that has played into my own personal Christian life. Um, and so I thought like, well, maybe having a conversation about sickness, about death, about disease, um, more broadly, and then to, to have our own personal stories would be fun. So, I mean, that's kind of like what we're going to be doing here today. We're going to be talking about sickness, disease, um, where it comes from, why it's a a problem. I, I can't remember who said it, or if this is just like a loosely based quote, but, um, basically someone said like, you'll live long enough to experience some sort of disease or sickness, or you'll at least know somebody who will. Um, like, it's just inevitable. It's, it's all around us. It's very uncommon for someone to have gone through life with zero complications, with zero difficulty. Um, and if it isn't you, it's somebody that you know. It's a friend. It's a family member. It's a pastor. It's a neighbor, um, whatever it might be. So this this is something that affects all of us. I, I know a lot of our episodes, we talk about maybe like higher um, overarching theological conversations that it's like maybe the average layperson doesn't give two thoughts about. Uh, but this, I think, will be one of our most like penetrating conversations because it's one that I think is a collective experience. So um, maybe without any further introduction, why don't you, Lucas, I think it'd be good for you to start with... Um, what you wanted to say, I think that might be a good place to begin. Cool. Yeah. Um, I definitely think that this is, like you said, I mean, it sounds silly to say, like, I feel like being relatable is kind of a meme, at least to me. So like, it feels weird to say it in a serious sense, but like, because it is something that we all have seen or have experienced in greater and lesser degrees, I do think you're, you're spot on. This is, this is potentially um, a conversation that everyone is really already a part of in their own lives and hopefully can kind of resonate with and connect with some of the stuff that we say today. Um, when we were talking about, you know, how to approach this conversation, um, I, 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 I want to attribute this to to the spirit because I don't you know I don't think I would have made this connection on my own if it was just me left to myself but um I was reminded of the early sections of on the incarnation by Saint Athanasius the Great as sort of a I think really more helpful analysis of where disease and sickness and death comes from in the human experience and the experience of life in this earth, then I remember really hearing kind of in normal church life growing up and even still today. I think that, you know, saying something like sickness, death, these sorts of things come from 
sin is is probably a pretty common you know assessment because of sin because we are we live in a fallen world uh, we get cancer we have viruses that attack our bodies uh, we deal with with depression and anxiety and other mental illnesses and challenges and we our bodies are frail and they decay and we have natural disasters and all these kinds of things that that we've already alluded to come you know they're a result of sin being in the world and i think that that's absolutely true but i don't know that that's a super helpful thing to say uh because it doesn't really give us much you know what i mean um it doesn't really give us a a good idea of like okay so it's because of sin but what does that mean where does where does that come from how does that relate to like i said the mental the spiritual the physical the human the natural you know all these it's it's on such a top to bottom scale i i kind of feel like just just simply saying oh it's a fallen world and moving on is not wrong but it's not really getting at the basis sort of sort of it's not parsing out and unpacking what that actually means um and i think that athanasius while i don't know that he was you know his intention wasn't to give us a theology of sickness or a theology of of death i think that a couple things that he has to say really contributes to i I think a more robust uh and a more sophisticated i guess theology of sickness if, if we can call it that um so I'm just going to read a couple of quotes from um, the early, like I said, the early sections of On the Incarnation and kind of maybe say a few things, but but really I'll just kind of let them speak for themselves. So quoting St. Athanasius, Upon them, humanity therefore, upon men who as animals were essentially impermanent, he bestowed a grace which other creatures lacked, namely the impress of his own image a share in the reasonable being of the very word himself, so that, reflecting him and themselves becoming reasonable and expressing the mind of God even as he does, though in limited degree, they might continue forever in the blessed and only true life of the saints in paradise. So that comes from section three, if you have a copy of On the Incarnation. And he's talking about the grace which other creatures lacked that God gave to humanity. We might think of that as being made in the Imago Dei, the image of God that we see in Genesis 1. We see in Genesis 2, the breath of life being breathed into Adam by God. Um, and what we have here is Athanasius is linking that to, to being, you know, expressing the mind of God, like he says. Um, and through doing so, through that relationship that we have with the very word himself, we are able to continue in the life that God had in paradise for us, right? So the life we have is, you know, the the unique life that humanity has as opposed to all the other animals in in creation. Um, While we share with them this this natural impermanence, uh, you know, naturally we are finite uh, and and we, we get sick and die, um, we are bestowed a grace which allows us to continue in the blessed and only true life that God gives us through the word, through Christ. Um, so moving on to this next section, but if they, humanity, went astray and became vile, throwing away their birthright of beauty, then they would come under the natural law of death, 
and live no longer in paradise, but dying outside of it, continue in death and in corruption. So we have this idea of the natural law of death. We see around us, you know, post-fall that we are subject to this law. We, we can't really escape from it. Animals can't escape from it. Plants can't escape from it. Um, we are not living in paradise, but we are dying outside of it. And we, as we, you know, obviously see, uh, continue in death and in corruption. Um, and the last quote I'll read, uh, humanity had become the cause of their own corruption in death. For, as I said before, though they were by nature subject to corruption, the grace of their union with the word made them capable of escaping from the natural law, provided that they retained the beauty of innocence with which they were created. That is to say, the presence of the word with them shielded them even from natural corruption. As also wisdom says, uh, and he's quoting the book of wisdom, not a person named wisdom. <laughs> um, God created man for incorruption and as an image of his own eternity, but by envy of the devil, death entered into the world. So, like I said, it's true that death, sickness, all of these things come from sin. But what does that actually mean? It means we have been cut off from the grace we were given as being made in God's image. Not that we are not made in God's image anymore, but that our union with the word is ruptured when we sin. And thus we fall under the law of the natural law of death. We are under natural corruption. You know, Paul refers to us as corruptible. This idea of corruption is a really tangible, I think, way of describing it that that the Bible and, and church history has given us. And we need the presence of the word to shield us from that natural corruption, as Athanasius says. We, we Naturally, we are subject to sickness and death. Naturally, just, just separate from God, we spiral, you know? Our bodies don't sustain themselves, which is not something that our bodies can do, obviously. It's not something that is natural. But it is something that God, the word, by his spirit gives us, right? And I, I think there's another, another you know, sort of a, a patristic and a biblical way of, of shining a light on this idea of union with Christ being the thing that, that communicates life to us, like physically. Um, St. Cyril of Alexandria talks about consuming the body of Christ in the Eucharist as a life-giving blessing uh, in Cyril. The, the reception of Holy Eucharist is actually part of deification like receiving the eucharist is um, a tool that deifies us that god uses to make us more like him which i think is a really interesting sacramental theology but also i think it's really biblical when we look at i mean think of all the examples of people who were healed just by touching jesus's body or even just touching jesus's clothes you know um i think that there is something to this idea of of jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, being our source of life. You know, that's not a metaphor in the sense of like, oh, Jesus is, you know, he represents life because he's God. No, like Jesus is our life source. He's the vine and we are the branches. That that picture is, we're not plants, that's the metaphor. But what's not the metaphor is that Jesus gives us life, right? Um, and I think that, for me, this is a really helpful 
way to sort of serve as a foundation of thinking about sickness and sin and death, um, specifically sickness and death in light of sin, it, 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 like I said, feels a little bit more fleshed out, a little bit more robust than just sort of saying, oh, we live in a fallen world and not really trying to unpack what that means, especially because if you just say, oh, sickness is because of, of sin, um, it it leaves the door open for some bad theologies of, of sickness, I think, um, because there is a relationship between sickness and sin, obviously. That's abundantly clear in scripture. It's clear in, in the you know picture that I just kind of summarized from Athanasius. But being sick doesn't mean that you sinned and God's mad at you. You know, think of the man born blind that the disciples ask Jesus who sinned, and he's like, nobody. He, like, this is not the reason, you know, you, you're misunderstanding the reason this guy has been afflicted with blindness from the time he was born, right? Um, so it, it's not this, this, this thing where, oh, somebody is sick, so I can point back, I can figure out where they sinned or what they did wrong, and they just need to repent of that, and they're going to get better. Um, I think also of, of like Job and his friends, you know, it, it's, it's, they're like, hey, you need to repent. He's like, I haven't done anything. <laughs> um, because he didn't. It, 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 he was a righteous man. He didn't, you know, he was, that wasn't the reason he was afflicted with all the things that he was. Um, however, sin can lead to sickness. Paul tells the Corinthians that a lot of them have died <laughs> because they're, they're mishandling the Eucharist when they, when they meet for worship and, and communion. They're, they're getting sick and they're dying because they aren't uh, receiving it worthily. They aren't, they aren't ap- approaching the table uh, properly. So I, I, I would never say that individual people don't get sick because, they, because of actual sins. I think that's true. We saw in our uh, episode on, on confession in James, the link between healing and, um, and sin, or I'm sorry, healing and confession of sin. Um, we didn't mention this part of the story, but the, the child that came from David's adultery and rape of Bathsheba um, died as a consequence, you know? Um, that's a consequence. That's, that's David's sin led to, as, as a consequence, the death of his child, you know? Um, so that, that is part of it, but it's not something where we can sit back and just say like, oh, I caught the flu, I must have made God mad last week and not realized it. Let me just repent so I'll get better. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's more to it than that. And, you know, once again, I think that the, the way that Athanasius conceives of corruption and the grace of, of the word shielding us from that corruption provides us with a little bit more room to have that necessary nuance when we start looking at actual people and actual sickness in our own lives and the lives of those around us. And even on like a sort of global scale, just thinking about the sin and the, and the sickness that we see in the world. Um, and, and I, I don't know, I think that's a, it was really helpful to me to con- to conceive in those terms of the, the source of, of sickness being rooted in sin because of sin introducing the corruption that we are subject to. Um, so I think that that was where I really wanted to, to frame everything in rather than avoiding the question or kind of overly simplifying it. Right. 
Well, it is that I think is a is a common tendency when we're talking about sickness and death in relation to, you know, a good perfect world that God made. Right, and it, it's interesting because there there is this like dynamic almost as balance because it's not as though you know if I tell you a lie right now, Lucas, like if I just blatantly lie to your face. Um, it's not as though like tomorrow I'm going to wake up blind or wake up with some sort of malady that, you know, wh- where did it come from? Oh, well, it's because I lied to Lucas. Like that's, that's not necessarily how things work. But in another very real sense, w- when we have sinful, destructive habits, we can get sick. We can get um, disease ridden. It can lead to death. Uh, and that's not to say that like that, that, I don't know, the relationship between sin and sickness and suffering and death is certainly there, as we've already said. And I don't know, the core of our struggle in life is sin. Sin is so deceitful. Uh, It is so nefarious and it it, it creeps in everywhere. Like it has tainted our being uh, so much so that we often don't don't recognize it. Um, it's, It's residing in our hearts. Um, and really the way that it shows itself is in seeking the things of creation, in seeking pleasure, in seeking, uh, true and lasting joy. I mean, everybody wants peace of heart. Everybody wants to be content. Everybody is searching for life in some sense. Everyone wants to be deeply and fully and perfectly loved. We want to find fulfillment and satisfaction, um, Really, everyone is on a quest for these things, um, even when they don't know that they are. Even if they search it in different ways from you, me, our neighbor, our parents, our brother, sister, whatever. um, Everyone is searching for something to look to, to put their hope in. Um, And so in a real way, everyone is born searching for God. They just don't don't know it. They don't recognize that. Um, And so as we live in this life with with idols, with with idolatry in our hearts, with, with sin... We're only going to be naturally drawn to those things that lead us further and further away from our creator. Um, And so sometimes, and this is a bit of irony, sometimes God uses sickness. God uses disease or if we just want to label, label it suffering in general, God can use those things to bring us back to him. So these things that are a result of our sin... These, these things that are, are a result of the fall, uh, God uses. And we, we know this to be true. I mean, and, you know, uh, Joseph, when he's before his brothers, um, after he's been sold into slavery, he's, you know, gone through prison. And now he's finally like second in command in all of Egypt. He's in charge of the storehouses during this famine. His brothers come from uh, Israel, basically, to to, to speak to, to him, to get food. And he says, you know, more or less, I forgive you. Um, but what, what you intended for evil, this, this wickedness, the sin that you committed, uh, God intended for good. Um, you know, or you can quote the ever popular bandaid, um, you know, um, why am I suddenly blanking on it? Um, like all things work right, together right, for right. Good. <laughs> like, well, how is it worded? Romans eight twenty eight. <laughs> right, yeah. All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Like that thing, that that verse is thrown around as much as Philippians four thirteen and Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. And um, I, I, in a sense, it's true. Obviously, it's in Scripture, uh, but people don't use it correctly. 
Um, but for, for Christians, for those who are called according to his purpose, his great overarching purpose for the cosmos, all things do work together for good. Even our sickness, even our disease, even our suffering, even if we can't see it in that moment, even if we never see it in this lifetime, we can have the hope and the confidence that even that, even though it was difficult, even though we suffered, even though we uh, maybe even died as a result, we can say that it worked for our eternal good. And there is hope in that. Um, but I, I was reading, so for Lent this year, um, I, I, I found this Lenten devotional. It's actually, it just came out in 2021, but Paul David Tripp um, had written it. And I thought it was kind of, you know, one thing to add to the the list of things I wanted to read and, and do during Lent. But uh, he, <laughs> one of the, the ever growing list, <laughs> right, right. And one of the things that he, he said in, in one of the daily reflections was that God intends suffering to pry open our hands. So we let go of the things of this earth and hold more tightly to Jesus. And so that's what start, started getting me thinking about how even suffering, sickness, disease, um, even though no one wishes it upon themselves, even though nobody wants those things, God can use even the brokenness of this world to pry our hands off of our idols, to pry our eyes away from the things that we're desiring more than we should be desiring it, and to, to reorient ourselves back towards Jesus, back towards that word. Um, something else he mentioned, he, he said in, in, uh, I think a few days ago, like the second day, he said, it is possible to think that you are a God worshiper because he is the object of your formal religious worship. But when it comes to the day-to-day -day affections of your heart, something or someone else could be in control. And it's not always that we are under the, uh, the control of evil things. Often good things have control over us um, that they should not have. And, and the point that he's making that I thought was really good is good things become bad things when they become ruling things. So when they become like controlling of our thoughts, our affections, our desires, um, even think about marriages, relationships, um, work, like things that can be good, they're not inherently evil, can become bad when we allow them to become the idol within our hearts, whether we recognize that or not. Um, and I know we're sort of like maybe t going away from our conversation about sickness and, and, and death, but I think recognizing the interrelation between sin, idolatry, and, and then suffering and sickness is, is important because we're all going to experience it whether we want to admit it or not. Well, I should say, unless Jesus comes again in our lifetimes, we are all going to experience death. Nobody is going to escape it. There's, you're not going to live forever, no matter how hard you might want to try. And so something that I've been thinking a lot about this week is this, actually, it's a, it's a Latin term. Um, it's also the title of an album that I really enjoy. Um, but Ars Moriendi is a Latin term that means the art of dying. And back in the 14 and 1500s, uh, there were these two works that were created um, out of, you know, medieval Christianity, uh, in light of the bubonic plague, you know, the Black Death, in light of all the things that were happening uh, in the world back then, these two books were written that were essentially, um, like, protocols and procedures of a good death. So what does it look like 
to be a Christian or to be a person and to die well, to, to, to perfect this art of dying, so to speak. Um, and maybe that sounds a little morbid. Maybe it sounds a little bit twisted to think of art as a death. And I'm not trying to make it like this romanticized thing that we should crave necessarily. Um, but I, I distinctly recall uh, during my time at Moody, I had a class. I'm pretty sure it was life in Bible times. And I'm, it, the, the professor continues to escape me. So if you went to Moody and you had life in Bible times, tweet us so I can stop thinking about this. Um, but we had this particular lecture one day and it didn't even pertain necessarily to the class. It was, I think it was just like a rabbit trail that started. Um, but our professor was talking about the art of dying, uh, how to die well, uh, because he recognized that as Christians, especially we're working t down that road towards death again, unless Jesus comes. And so how do we as Christians live this life? Well, how do we die? Well, and especially in light of, you know, like a bleak cancer diagnosis or the death of a loved one. Uh, because it seems like for a lot of people, when those things come, when sickness and death and disease come, for some people that turns people away from God. They see like, you know, even Job, you mentioned Job, his friends basically say, curse God and die. Like some people, when, when these things befall us, they, they, they wonder like, how could a good God ever allow me to get cancer? How is that even possible? Like, wh why am me? Why am I suffering right now? I don't deserve this. I've been a good person. I've tithed. I've gone to church. I read my Bible. I shouldn't have to endure this, right? I'm sure we all know people who, even if they don't say those words, that's sort of their demeanor. Uh, but I think of somebody like Tim Keller, for example, who I, I can't remember what type of cancer he was diagnosed with recently. Um, but has in, has been enduring um, treatment and um, recovery. And I think he's doing pretty well, like all things considered. Um, I know, I'm pretty sure John Piper also had cancer and, and recovered a while ago. But um, there are these examples of, of wise and um, just really good examples of what it looks like to die well, to perfect, so to speak, this art of dying. And, and part of it, I think as we've been saying all along, is a recognition of one, where these things come from, their purpose, and what it thus can lead us towards. So we know that it comes from sin in a sense because we live in a fallen world and living in a fallen world has grand effects that we can't even always perceive. So even if my one particular sin did not lead to me having diabetes, in a sense, diabetes is a result of sin, of fallenness in the world. Um, I don't know if you have a, anything else you want to add here before we start maybe getting into some of like the more personal side of our own stories here. Um, but one of the last things that I wanted to mention is another Latin term, uh, memento mori. Um, and maybe you've heard this phrase as well, but it's an artistic or symbolic reminder of the inevitability of death. So there, throughout, you know, church history, throughout human history, um, sometimes people have used these little artistic and symbolic, you know, paintings, carvings, necklaces, whatever. Um, in a sense, the cross is like if you wear a cross around your neck, that is a memento mori. 
Uh, it's a symbolic reminder of the inevitability of death. Um, even if you don't die crucified, uh, the, the, the crucifix is a reminder of death. Um, but for me, there have been a couple of things in my own life that have become these memento moris, so to speak. Um, for a while, even like giving myself daily insulin injections. Like I had, to, I, had, I had insulin pens that had needles and I was giving myself shots like four times a day. And they were a constant reminder, a constant reminder that if I don't give myself this shot, the only outcome is death. If I don't have insulin within me, I, I literally, the result is pretty quick and imminent death. Um, just to give you an example of the severity of being insulin dependent. Um, so maybe it's something else for you. And again, I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm not trying to say that you have to go out and find something that reminds you of the inevitability of death. Um, but I think that something that we forget in the 21st century is where we are heading. Because everything in the culture would want to tell you that death can be postponed. Um, you know, if you get this beauty cream, if you do this, you'll extend your life by this amount of time. If you exercise like this, if you have whatever, if you do these certain things, you can prolong and extend your life, live a full, happy, healthy life. You don't even have to be part of the prosperity gospel. It's just part of like our American gospel, so to speak. Um, but as Christians, especially, we ought to live in light of the realities of the world and death is a reality of the world and we ought to be people who have perfected the art of dying who can live this christian life well to run the race to endure the last thing i'll say think of the apostle paul think of all of the things that he endured in his earthly body the beatings the whippings being shipwrecked a night and a day at sea being hungry being hated his ultimate death that came, all for the cause of the cross. And if you don't endure all of the things that he endured, uh, by God's grace, that's a great and merciful thing. But if you do, if you're somebody like our, isn't it our Syrian brother and sisters who like five years ago, was it five or six years ago that they were um, uh, beheaded as like a spectacle, um, but it, it turned out to end up being like a, um, a real powerful proclamation of, of the gospel of, of, of Christianity of what uh, what our faith is and what it means uh, so I don't know I, I don't know where you want to take it from here but is there anything that you kind of want to add in yeah I, I really appreciate listening to all that because I, I tend to be very much I, I would err on the side of this is this is something we're subject to sickness suffering and it's something that we are able to endure and be sustained through by god and i i'm always hesitant to say things like god will use this or he wants to use this or suffering is something that god uses to sanctify us or whatever I, I remember, I'm not going to name the book, but I remember a book in a class that you and I took together at Moody that I just remember reading it and just being very, like, uncomfortable, which there's a good there's a good kind of uncomfortable, but I also think there's, there's a time where being uncomfortable reflects that this is maybe not the best thing being said here, but regardless of what, what you might may or may not agree or disagree with me about, just the idea of, like seeing 
every instance of evil and and tragedy and injustice and disaster as something that that God wants to use for good. I think can it, it might not sound like it, but it can be a bad thing. Yeah. I think at least yeah. that's the way that I tend to tend to err is when I when I see you know a car crash that kills a kid, you know I I don't te- my initial thought is not how God is potentially able to be glorified and and uh, you know how that family is able to be sanctified and drawn closer to Him. You know what I mean? I I tend to see how can the love of God be shown to that family and that family draw closer to him as a rock and a refuge uh, as their redeemer in the face of absolute evil and tragedy. tragedy. Um, And I'm not, I'm not saying that people that, you know, I'm special because I have this perspective and I tend to be hesitant with, you know, the sanctifying aspect of suffering. And that's why I said, you know, I appreciate um, a reminder of those things that, that you gave in a way that is not irresponsible. <laughs> well, I do want, I do want to be clear though, because I like that you, I, I like that you brought that up because I would agree I, even for myself. Yeah, right. I, I don't think I, if you, I want everyone to hear me when I say that, like, I'm not saying that as soon as suffering befalls you, you need to suddenly like find the good in it or, or recognize the <laughs> sanctifying aspect. Cause I literally right. have highlighted here in my document, mourn, groan, <laughs> weep, lament, like these things that like yeah. f- come first that when, when suffering does befall that family yeah. who loses a, a child tragically, that's when you don't throw out the bandaid of God works all things together for good. You know that, right? That's not the first right. thing that you say when tragedy comes, you, you, there needs to be this. And it's probably right. The, it's probably not even something that you are going to be saying ever. Maybe you shouldn't <laughs> ever say it. Right, right. Um, that doesn't make it not true. And that doesn't mean that God isn't going to say that to them. But like, I, I you know, that, that tends to, and, and to also to clarify, you know, like I wasn't saying that you are no, 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 yeah. Yeah. someone who does that, or I, it's just something that I feel like I've seen growing up in the, in, in, and reading and, and going, you know, just in my, christian experience i i hear that and see that a lot or have at least seen and heard that a lot so i wanted to like kind of just highlight my own again i'm not saying it's necessarily even the right inclination but my own tendency to sort of lean the opposite way of that and and uh the thing is that god is bigger than all of this stuff so he does redeem evil but i think that what's dangerous is if we don't see evil as evil and we see it as something good that right. hurts us, that feels bad in the moment. Because it's not something good that we just feel as bad. You know, the, the the cancer diagnosis or the death of a loved one. Like, that stuff, as we saw, it's not what God intended for us and right. intends for us in the future. Um, but he's not thwarted by it, which is where the Genesis 50 and the end of Job and the Romans 8.28, it's where those things come in because they are true. The difference is those things are not negating suffering as suffering. They're not negating evil as evil. They're also um, not the starting point. That, that's not where That's where start. I think we, we right, exactly. The, 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 and exactly. The reason you can't start there is that's not what 
that's not the right perspective you know the the right perspective of romans eight twenty eight is not everything that happens to me is good i just need to learn how to see that it's good it's that evil is not the final word you know you read revelation you know you read you read from genesis to revelation evil doesn't win the devil doesn't have the upper hand he doesn't get the final word but that's not to say that the devil isn't evil <laughs> and that the devil's works are not evil and and that the, you know that there's not such a thing as experiencing evil as a result of our sin the sins of others and the sins of our forefathers and mothers in in uh humanity going all the way back to the garden you know um and and that's definitely it tends to be the forefront of my mind when i look around um at my own experiences and the experiences of of those around me and that's and you know i've i i've i've seen in myself sort of a a growth from a place of just almost nihilism and despair in the face of evil to being more able to see the hand of God working in the midst of those things. But I just, I, I just think you need to maintain a real careful hand of that doesn't negate what's bad. You know, the good doesn't negate the bad. It overcomes it. Right. Um, and when, when a family in your church loses a, a father and husband, you don't need to pretend that's not a horrible thing that, we should be willing to give anything to undo if we could. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that Jesus did give everything to undo it. <laughs> it just isn't, uh, because of sin, it's not something that is fully realized yet. It will be. That's the end of the story. Uh, but we're not at the end of the story yet, currently living here as, as we do in, in the world. And I think that's kind of what I would, would want to say. And I think that, that that's abundantly clear when we start to Look at our own experiences, whether we've had uh, family members and loved ones who have passed away, whether we have personal experience or, or just, you know, secondhand knowledge of severe medical difficulties and, and, and uh, issues and challenges or, or other things like, nat- like natural disaster, like the people suffering in Texas right now or people who, have, who are oppressed and, and suffering violence and injustice around the world. You know, you mentioned the, um, I think the... The Coptic martyrs of, of 2015 being beheaded by ISIS. We just like a couple weeks ago, 750 Ethiopian Christians and I think some Muslims as well were massacred. Like what the heck, you know? Like like we, it, it's overwhelming, you know. Um, and it it should be because it doesn't belong, you know. And that's where, that's where I think the the grace of God really comes through in our lives when we analyze how is it reflect on the things that we have experienced and struggle with or or know of in other people in their experiences and struggles um and i think like you know i just i kind of know a little bit because we've we've talked a little bit about this before you know before recording and, and in the past or whatever but like i think that some of the things i've heard you say over the last geez is it is it almost two years since you were diagnosed? Yeah, it'd be two years like in June. Of... Man, that's insane. <laughs> I still remember like talking on the phone. Man, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> but um, but I mean, it's crazy for me. I can't imagine for for you. <laughs> but um, but I, I I just I feel like some of the things that I've heard you say over these almost two years in in reference to 
that experience I think have been really convicting as well as I don't know if inspiring is the right word, but I feel like <laughs> they've really pointed me to to a to a place of maturity just in terms of being able to lean on Christ in the midst of something as radically life-changing as going from not having diabetes to having diabetes. Like I can't even conceive of that kind of a transition and, and it's just, just struggle physically, you know, um, let alone emotionally or financially or however else it, it, you know, affects your life. But I mean, um, I don't know. I just, I feel like you have a lot of really valuable things to say based on that. So I kind of wanted to like move on to, to talking about that. If you're, if you're ready. Yeah. So, for for like to make this like personal to make it real just to to show that we're not just talking and theologizing and making stuff up i guess like this this idea of the art of dying and maybe that's not even always even the best term but in a sense it is a it is an art it is something that you learn i mean nobody just is born and suddenly is like painting like van gogh or something like you learn you develop you uh refine your skills you you mature um and so for me personally so i i've so my wife first of all my wife has crohn's disease she's had it almost her entire life um so when we got married in 2016 (laughs) when we got married in 2016 um one of the hardest things for me um was suddenly two people becoming one and a big part of that is like life habits and the things that you do suddenly you're doing together and so even something as simple as like shopping for groceries like when I wanted to get a bunch of pizza which at the time she couldn't have dairy she couldn't have gluten couldn't have meat like because of her Crohn's disease like that meant that I was making very like real sacrifices and I don't mean to sound like I, there, there was a lot of growing and developing and maturing that I had to do at the young age of 21 being a newly married man um, but it, it was a source of like difficulty of, of hardship to to be adjusting diet and um, you know where I like to eat out what I like to eat uh, for lunch and for dinner um, because I, I learned very quickly that like I couldn't just buy a pizza and eat it in front of her because she wanted that pizza she, she wanted those p- slices just as much as I did um, You're making me hungry just talking. I, about it. <laughs> I know, um, but like, for a good a good part of our marriage, like it was me having to die to myself in a lot of ways, learning how to um, be a good and loving husband. Um, but as as time goes on, like Hannah's uh, like dietary needs shift a little bit, so like things will fluctuate for what she can and can't have and when, um, but. So fast forward a little bit to, to 2019. Uh, I was a youth pastor in Downers Grove. We were living in Woodridge, Illinois. Um, I was, we were just doing our thing. And, you know, I would go out to lunch with students, with, with friends, with staff members. Um, my diet for most of my life has been very sugary and very carby. Okay, I'll just, I'll just put that out there. I mean, when people make those jokes about pizza and Mountain Dew for like a youth pastor, that's like a real thing. It's not just a stereotype. I mean, like any event that you have, pizza and soda are really easy things because you can buy a lot of pizza and a lot of soda and it's not that expensive. Um, but, you know, outside of that, I mean, I, I did have a lot of soda on my own. I would um, 
you know, have sugary drinks, sugary food. I mean, I loved Swedish fish and sandwiches and bread and goldfish and crackers and cookies. Like, go to any store, any grocery store, any aisle. Almost anything you can think of has carbs and it has sugar. Um, and so, I'm, I'm, I'm 24, youth pastoring. It's the middle of summer. Hannah and I are going for walks all the time. I'm biking quite a bit. Basketball is meeting every Monday night, and I'm playing for like three or four hours with these kids every every Monday night. Um, just like always go, go, go. And like I'm losing a lot of weight, and I'm not that big of a dude. I mean, right now I'm the heaviest I've ever been, but prior to now, maybe like 160 was like my average. Um, I was losing significant weight. I had to punch two different holes in my belt so that my belt would fit. Um, I, I would have, I, I had a parent ask me like, hey, like, are you feeling okay? Like, you don't, you know, it, it, are you losing weight? I had a student ask me. Um, and I think it was in June, the end of June of 2019, we went home. So my wife and I left Illinois. We went home um, for like 4th of July weekend to visit both of our families in Wisconsin. Uh, I walk into my house. No, no, I walked into our, my in-laws house and um, my father-in-law is like, hey, are, are you losing weight? Like, you don't look so good. And I was like, I don't think so. If I am, it's not that much. And then Hannah's mom comes up the stairs and she's like, hey, it looks like you've lost some weight. So like literally the first thing that both of her parents say, like right when we see them for the first time in a couple months is like, you don't look very healthy. Um, so we, we like were with them for the afternoon and then we drove to my parents' house to go meet them for dinner or whatever. And I walk into my house and my mom's like, honey, you don't look so good. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, what is going on? Everybody keeps telling me that I'm losing weight. I think even like you and Elaine, like when we had seen you before you went back to Massachusetts, I feel like you guys mentioned something like in May. Um, but like this, it had just been a number of people that have been telling me like, you don't look good. You like, are you okay? Like, are you going through something? And to my knowledge, I wasn't going through anything. Like when I'm punching holes in my belt and when I feel like I'm really thirsty, when I'm going to the bathroom like three or four times in the night, I just attribute that to me being thirsty all the time. Um, and so my mom starts asking me questions because she's a nurse. She's like, do you have this? Is this going on? What about this? What about this? And she finally gets to questions about like related to diagnosing a diabetic. And she's like, are you drinking a lot? Like, are, are you thirsty all the time? Are, are you going to the bathroom quite a bit? And Hannah looks at me and is like, uh, yeah, you're going like sometimes three or four nights or three or four times in the night, um, which obviously is not like that should have been an indication that something was wrong. If I'm going to the bath, like getting up to go to the bathroom in the, in the middle of the night, three or four times, like something is not right. Um, so I was like, I was a little shocked when my mom's like, you know, you might have type one diabetes. It, you, we know that it runs in the family. I have a grandmother who has it, a cousin um, on the same side. So uh, I scheduled an appointment for the doctor for the following Monday because this was like a Saturday. Um, and so I, I went to the doctor in Downers Grove on Monday. I told him um, what was going on, what I thought was wrong. And he, so he did some blood tests. He did a urine test. And basically, he had me wait in the waiting room. Um, well, actually, uh, well, maybe I don't remember all the, the, the exact order, um, but like he he did a test to see like how things were going, and all the tests came back pretty strongly saying we think you have type one diabetes. So he he had done a finger poke to see where my blood sugar was. It was like in the three fifties. 
um, when they checked my A1C, so that's one of the blood tests, my blood test, um, an A1C is an average um, test that can show, or I should say it's a test that shows the average of a blood sugar over a three-month period of time. And basically my the percentage was 14.9%, which whatever that correlates to is something like 300 to 400 is what my blood sugar was as the average over the last three months. Um, and so basically, for those that don't know, um, a normal person is probably around 100 to 120 most of the time, I think. Um, and so to be at about three to 400 is like really not good. To have that much sugar in your blood um, can cause complications. It can cause um, blindness. You can lose limbs. You can um, even die if it got to be too hard. Uh, most people, when they learn that they have diabetes, they, they learn because they're hospitalized. So whether they pass out or they go into a coma, like a diabetic coma, um, thankfully for me, I, that didn't happen. I, I've never passed out. I've never lost consciousness. But my doctor was stunned. He's like, I can't believe it took till now for you to learn that you have type 1 diabetes. And I can't believe that like it didn't put you in the hospital. Um, so again, a, a merciful and gracious God allowed that to be the case. Um, but from that day forward, I have lived as a type one diabetic and I, I, I didn't know, and I still don't know what that means fully. I mean, I, it's only been two years and I've, I've learned to manage it and to live. Um, but it was a very, very shocking thing. And H Hannah didn't come with me. She, she had something going on. So I like, I remember like going out to my car, I'm like sitting in my, in the front seat of my car after the doctor told me you're, you have type one diabetes and here's all the things that you're going to have to do differently. I just remember calling Hannah and just like, I couldn't help but break out crying. Like my doctor tells me, at, so at first he wasn't going to put me on mealtime insulin. At first he was just like, um, he, he's like no carbs, no sugar. Like we need to get you stabilized. We need to get you under control. So you cannot have carbs and sugar. And so I'm thinking like, what can I eat? Like everything I eat is carbs and sugar. Uh, and suddenly like I'm checking the labels on everything. And like literally for dinner that night, I had like 10 pickle spears. Cause like, I just didn't know what to eat. I had like 10 dill pickles because like, I'm like, well, it doesn't have carbs. It doesn't really have sugar. I'm just gonna, it's, it, if it does, it's healthy carbs. Um, but it was, it was, it was jarring. It was shocking. Suddenly like Hannah and I are doing research about like what I can eat and, um, for the first couple of months, it was really hard. Like if I wanted to go out to eat at a restaurant, if I went to Culver's, normally I would have gotten a burger or chicken tenders or something. I was getting the grilled chicken sandwich, but not eating the bun. And then I was getting broccoli as my side. So I'm having grilled chicken and broccoli, which is like the last thing that I want. I want the chicken tenders and I want the French fries. Um, and sometimes as I like say all this, it sounds kind of like silly or vain or like, oh, well, just get over it. Um, but like, as I've come to learn, like food becomes an idol. There's a reason that gluttony is a sin. Uh, but like we become so dependent upon it. We become so attached to it. It, it becomes a source of comfort, of joy, food. I mean, food is important. It, it nourishes us. It gives us energy, helps our bodies function properly. Um, but just like anything else, it can become that idol 
uh, that is replacing God within our lives. And I, I, I soon started to learn like all the different ways in which food very much was an idol for me or where I, I would go to soda. Like there, there's something comforting about like a good can of cold Mountain Dew, like when I was stressed or something. Um, and so it was, it was a very difficult adjustment for me at first to suddenly have to literally 180 my entire life as it pertained to how I ate. For the first two months, I wasn't on insulin injections for meals. I would just do a shot of insulin every night. Um, but once I was more regulated and my numbers were a little bit better, they got me on what's called like mealtime insulin. So basically with every meal, I would be giving myself a shot like 15 minutes prior to eating to sort of mimic what my body should naturally do. And I didn't even really mention what type 1 diabetes is for those that don't know. Um, but type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. Um, so it's not something that I did to myself. It's not like I ate really poorly and all this is a result. Like I ha my body has a compromised immune system and that compromised immune system attacked my pancreas to no longer produce insulin, which my body needs, which your body regulates properly, Lucas, and maybe most of you that are listening. Um, but now my, pa my pancreas does not produce any insulin. And so I'm insulin dependent, which means that I need to give myself an artificial insulin via an injection or via my now insulin pump. Um, so when I was giving myself insulin at night, it was called like long acting insulin. So it stays in your body for like 24 to 48 hours. Um, mealtime insulin is fast acting and it's meant to mimic what your pancreas normally does. And so once I was on mealtime insulin, it gave me a bit of flexibility back. I could start introducing um, carbs and sugars again, though I still need to be careful. I can't like when I have soda, it's always diet or like Coke Zero or something. I can't just have a soda. Like, I don't know if you know this, like look at any can of soda, like a, an A&W, my wife has A&W bottles. There's like 80 grams of sugar in a bottle of A&W. I would literally like, my blood sugar would be right back up to 400 if I had that without insulin. So I just, I, I don't have soda or if I do, it's diet. Um, I don't eat candy anymore. I don't eat Oreos. I don't like those things that are just like really sugary, um, really bad for me. I, I have to avoid, um, and so for, for me, I've, I've learned to like new foods. I've learned to adapt. I've, I've, as I mentioned earlier, I've, I've learned to give myself shots. Um, and, and today, now, in, in 2021, um, I have what's called a, a continuous glucose monitor. So I wear this little thing on my arm that is always giving me blood sugar readings. So what I used to have to do is poke my finger. So like this little finger poke, and then you have like this test strip that you put the blood up to, and it would read what your blood sugar is just at that very moment that it's reading it. That That's a, that's a good thing in a sense, but it doesn't give the full picture of like, which way is your blood sugar going? Uh, are you trending up? Or are you trending down? Um, because as a, as a diabetic, you need to be aware of those things. Uh, because if you've ever seen Paul Blart, mall cop, he has what's called hypoglycemia. Uh, which basically, for me, I, I, can, I can have hypoglycemia if my blood sugar gets too low. So when I get to like 55, like that's the lowest I've ever been. When my blood sugar is 55, I'm hot, I'm sweaty, I'm shaky. I'm probably laying on the floor because like it's hard to do anything else. And I need sugar like now or I risk like passing out from hypoglycemia. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, I am at risk of hyperglycemia, which is high blood sugar. 
And high blood sugar has other complications. It can cause seizures. It can cause um, like paralysis. It can cause um, even as severe as comas. Um, so like a couple last year during the Super Bowl, I had some pizza. I had some sugary alcohol. Um, and this is before I had the continuous glucose monitor. And after the Super Bowl, when I got home and tested my blood sugar, and when it said like 450, I was like super nervous. I, I could not sleep. I stayed up till like 2 a.m. until my blood sugar started coming down. Um, so like I, I, a lot of this has been a learning experience. It's been learning like what my body can and can't handle and what I can and can't have um, because certain carbs and certain sugars function differently in your body. Um, and so now that I have this continuous glucose monitor, I sometimes post them to Twitter if you've ever seen them. Um, but basically every five minutes it's, it's reading my blood sugar. And based on that reading, it can, it can show you a trend. It can show you, um, which way I'm going. So is my blood sugar going up? Is my blood sugar going down? Um, and that's, and that's important because if my blood sugar is going up, I can take corrective action. If I, if I'm suddenly going up to like 215, I can give myself some insulin to help counteract and bring me back down. Or if I'm trending down and I'm at like 80 and it's angling down, I can be like, okay, well now I can take corrective action and I can drink a juice box or I can have a little piece of chocolate to help bring me back up. And so like, I'm really thankful for technology like that. Um, and also now I'm on an insulin pump, which I think even beeped a couple of times during this episode, but um, it's, it's basically a device that another device that I wear that is giving me a continual drip of insulin. So it replaces that long acting shot that I gave myself at night and it's, it's doing it all day long, a very small dose that adds up to the same dose that I used to give myself. And then just like when I would give myself an injection at mealtime, I can direct this insulin pump to give me, and it's, this is super cool. Like before I was basically just kind of guessing at how much insulin to give myself based on what I was eating. But now this device, I can look at like, okay, so let's say I'm having um, cereal. Like I have this cereal called Magic Spoon, which is very, it has no sugar, um, but it's very low carb. It's like a really good, look it up, Magic Spoon. Um, I can enter, let's just say like 10 grams of carbs, and then I can enter my blood sugar, and this little device will calculate based on all of that and based on how much insulin is already in me, how much insulin to give, to give me like what should be the exact dosage that I need. Like it's, it's insane. I'm like, how did people manage diabetes before we had technology like this? Like my grandmother who was diagnosed in the fifties, how did she do, how is she still alive? Like, I, and, and this, this makes sense. Like when, when you think about like human history, it makes sense why life expectancy was so short. It makes sense why people live to be 30, 40, 50 instead of 60, 70, 80, 90. Because we just we didn't have the technology and the medicine to, to keep people um, from from these just very real and common experiences. And so to now like begin my own descent out of this conversation, um, my experience as a type one diabetic has been one of mourning, groaning, weeping, lamenting. Like when I was diagnosed, that's like all I could think about. Like, I was like, man, my life is over. I am 24 and I'm never going to enjoy the things that I used to enjoy. And there's, there was a sense of like real mourning, of, of even anger, of, of hostility, of, of deep lament. 
I mean, I was actually in the middle of reading a book on lament at the time. And I just remember being like, man, like providence is great and all God, but like, I don't want to lament. There's, I shouldn't have to lament. I wanted to read this book to help people lament. I didn't want to lament myself. Um, and as time has gone on, I've learned to live with having type 1 diabetes. I've learned to accept that I'm going to be insulin dependent for the rest of my life unless they somehow find a cure. Um, and in a lot of ways, it has been sanctifying. Like as this has progressed, I have learned the ways in which God has used it for good. I've learned the ways, like I said, that it has sanctified me. It's not that right away I was like, ooh, I'm sanctified. I have type 1 diabetes. Like it, it, it came through a recognition of like, man, having type 1 diabetes is a continual denying my flesh. Like very literally. I want pizza. I want Swedish fish. I want a, a normal can of soda or whatever it might be. But like, I know that it's bad for me. I know that I can't have it. And so like, I have to deny my physical appetites, my physical pleasures, and often have something that I do not want. Which in a sense is a picture of the Christian life. Dying to our flesh. Dying to the desire for pornography, for... Um, lust, greed, money, whatever, whatever vice it is, whatever sin it is, we are continually dying to our flesh, oftentimes like against our own desires. Like we, we want our sin. We want those things that are going to lead us towards death. That'll lead us to not be well. Uh, but God does know what is good for us. He does know what is better for us. And so at times in our lives, he does put these I don't know, roadblocks, these barriers, these signposts on the road towards inevitable death uh, as a reminder to take your eyes off of those things that you're clinging to so hard and ardently and to then look to Christ, who is your sufficiency. Um, I don't know. There, there, there have been many difficult days. There have been many very good days. Um, I've made some friends who are who are diabetics who um, really like it, it's a it's a community because you know unless you've lived it you you don't know what it's like even if you can have an idea um, it's it's great to have friends and acquaintances who share similar experiences which again is what the church is we are a redeemed people who have a shared experience of living as idolaters who have been purchased, who have been redeemed, who have been uh, sanctified and are being sanctified and will be continually sanctified in this life. Church just isn't this gathering of people with like-minded affinities, uh, but we're a people who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who have been rescued, who have been pulled from the domain, the dominion of death. Um, even though we're still heading towards that trajectory, we know that death is not our end. We know that life and life eternal with our Savior is the ultimate thing that will come in our life. And so whatever sickness befalls us, whatever disaster, whatever destruction, whatever comes our way, we can have the hope that our Savior is one there with us, that he cares for us, that he empathizes with us as someone who endured rejection, mockery, crucifixion, death, and who will 
Jesus isn't just like the magic band-aid to get you through your hardship, um, but he's there on that road with you uh, to carry you, to support you, to give you people in your life who will also help you. Um, and at this point now, I'm just kind of rambling, so I'm trying to like reorient my thoughts here. But um, yeah, that's that's a, a little bit of my own story and how sickness, how disease um, has helped me recognize my idolatry that has helped me recognize my sinfulness, uh, my, my neediness, and has helped point me towards my Savior. As, as weird as that sounds, that diabetes can do that. Um, but my for me, my memento moris, as I mentioned, have been insulin injections. Um, they've been those finger pokes. Like literally, when, when you poke your finger and blood is pouring out, um, in a sense, it's a reminder that like, man, I'm, I'm human. I live in this body of, of flesh. I have this blood and my savior has the same blood in his veins. He's, you know, we've talked about it quite a bit. God, Jesus is fully God, fully man. The fully man part of him, that same blood is within him. And that's what separates Christianity from the religions of the world is that God became an actual man to rectify the problems in humanity, that the sin the death, the things that we caused, God loved us so much that he entered into that reality, putting on the same flesh and the same blood. I don't know. His, his I don't, I don't want to get like too like sappy or sentimental, but that's, that's, I guess that's where I'll leave it. Um, I don't know if you have anything you want to add about that, or if you want to talk about your own story. This might just be a longer episode um, or you, you're welcome to sort of take this wherever you wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really know what else I could add um, to what to what you've said. Um, I will mention a little bit of just sort of my own experiences because they are different. They touch on a different aspect, I think, of, of human experience and the human condition. So I think it, it I hope at least it, it might be worth for somebody listening to to also contribute a little bit just from a different perspective um uh, you know i so my wife has something called vactoral association or, or vader syndrome um which is a basically a collection of of co-occurring genetic um i don't really know exactly i don't know a lot about it but um issues that that have plagued her from birth with all sorts of challenges physically um, and chronic pain and chronic conditions that she's dealt with in different, you know, to different degrees at different times. We've spent a lot of time in, in ERs and spending the night in hospitals. And um, that was sort of, I, I think, my introduction to disease and sickness in terms of my own life. I didn't have a lot of close connections or encounters with physical ailments growing up I mean I knew people who died I knew people who had cancer things like that but but never quite as firsthand or you know as close as as when Elaine and I started experiencing you know her own struggles together after we got married and um, that's sort of something that was really has really played a big role I think in just me sort of seeing just the the limits of 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 human beings you know just like from a from a from a very physical perspective 
Um, there are just things that we can't do, and different people have different limits, but we all share a lot of limits too. Um, and I think that that's really, for me, been what my own experiences with sicknesses and ailments, they've, they've pointed, what they've pointed me towards is, is my own, you know, and you know, collective and then my own frailty and, and limits and um, the, the, the ways that I need to be dependent on somebody else because I can't handle things um, on my own, even if I even if I tried, just because of my own, like I said, frailty and limits. Um, and for me personally, I've what I I, I you know I'm I'm fairly healthy. Um, you know, I could probably lose a few pounds, but like I, I don't have any fi- big physical challenges or problems, and I, and I never have. Um, what I've come to to deal with and, and grapple with and I really feel like I'm still in a phase where I'm kind of coming to terms with sort of how to conceive of it like how to think about it how to sort of comprehend it but um it for me my, my family has sort of a a long and I, I would suspect largely undiagnosed history with with mental illness in many different forms um, and I've seen the the havoc that that has wreaked on and in, in, you know, on family members and in my family's lives and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the way that that's manifested itself in my own life is, is anxiety, which I know is, is not a unique experience, particularly <laughs> in these days of real heightened tension in a lot of different areas of life and, and, and heightened struggles. And I mean, you know, I, one thing that I like is I, I, I think everybody has anxiety. You know what I mean? Okay, I'm not saying everybody is anxious about the same things or that everybody experiences it the same way or to the same level, but there are everyone at some point is going to be anxious about something. So I feel like it's something that can unite. Like it's easy to empathize with someone who's anxious for me because I know what it's like to be anxious. And for me, I, you know, I've it got to the point where... I was, you know, I've, I've had a couple, several panic attacks that have resulted in being, you know, vomiting and just being incapacitated for, for the rest of the day or the rest of the weekend even. And, um, I was, I had a panic attack in Belgium that put me, you know, I had to go to the ER in Europe because I didn't know what was going on. And then it turns out it was a panic attack and, um, that through, you know, some experiences like that, I ended up on medication that I ended up getting off of. And now I'm on different medication because I just can't handle it. And I thought I could. And it, like I said, has put me in a place of dependence on, I hope, it, you know, it is contributing to a, a, a more dependence on Christ. But it's certainly been a, a trying, challenging thing to grapple with just how to handle this thing that feels so it feels dumb you know it feels dumb to you know have some kind of anxiety attack or you know acute moment of anxiety and then to look back on that when I've calmed down and and be like why you know I shouldn't be I shouldn't be feeling this way I don't need you know like that's it feels immature it feels childish it feels like I can't you know I can't handle something that I should be able to handle 
Um, I can't deal with things the way I should be dealing with them or whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, it's I'm not in a place mentally, emotionally where I can. Um, when I get anxious, I, I, it manifests differently for different people. But, you know, I, I feel I get really hot, I feel waves of heat kind of traveling up and down my body. My, t- my chest gets tight. Um, I get real fidgety. I can't sit still. Um, and I just can't see things rationally, you know, and there, there've been no end of, of difficult moments where <laughs> Elaine's tried to calm me down, but it doesn't work. Not because she's wrong, but because I can't see what she's saying that's true in that moment, you know, it's, and, um, so for me, you know, I, like I mentioned, I'm on, I'm on, my doctor has prescribed a medication. It's a, it's an SSRI, which means that it helps regulate the amount of serotonin that's in my brain as a, just a, I don't know, again, I, I know next to nothing about this stuff, but I just kind of know the, the vocab words or whatever, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's not really much else to say. I think from my own experience, I the only the, the reason I I feel like it's worth bringing up, like I said, is it's it's a very different experience than type one diabetes. It's a very different experience than um, you know a, 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 some kind of physical injury from a car crash or something. Um, and, and I think it's an experience that that everyone can understand to some degree. And some people are really gonna, I hope recognize sort of that that the, the the struggle of mental illness and and anxiety and those sorts of things um in a way that you they might not be able to recognize diabetes in their own experience or life and it's all like you said it's all bundled together in the body of christ because all people are in the body of christ that like there's no there's no type of person who's excluded you know um there's no experience that Jesus can't relate to because there's no experience you know that that is is alien to the human nature that we all share uh, in in different ways and, and we have different experiences that come out of that but um, but yeah like I said there's nothing I can really add to what what you've said and I think that um, at the end of the day these are just, personal instantiations and experiences of what we were talking about of (sighs) there are snowstorms that leave people without water for weeks at a time there are perfectly healthy people who just get slammed with some life-altering medical diagnosis for no reason there are people who struggle daily with just making it through the day because of experiences they've had or differences in chemicals in their brain or things they were born with that limit them in ways that other people aren't limited and the list can go on and on and on and ultimately hopefully this you know sort of longer than planned but important I think conversation where we've tried to sort of put things in a little bit reflect on them theologically, put them in the perspective that I think is faithful to what scripture gives us and and also tie it to our own experiences in, in different ways and in our own lives um, that all people share in different ways, in different specifics. But in general, we all share this battle with the corruption that we're a part of, that we're a, you know subject to until that day in the future when 
we are fully deified when, you know, as Paul says, the, the, the corruptible will put on the incorruptible. I think First John says it's something about like, you know, we, we will, when we see him, we will be like he is, you know, and we get to do that. But right now, we are, we, we are still subject to these experiences and um, we don't need to be afraid of talking about it. Um, and we don't need to talk about it in a way that's dishonest. You know, these are results of the devil and sin and death that are, that are not, they don't have a place in God's creation. It's not how God made things. Um, and it's not how things will be uh, remade at the end of this age and in the age to come. And um, we don't need to pretend that things aren't evil in order to glean comfort from the truth of um the work that the father is doing through the son and the power of the spirit in in the world and in our lives as individuals and especially um, as the church worldwide and throughout time and space that we get to participate in that together and will for all eternity get to participate in that and um yeah i think that's that's probably where we should should probably wrap up agreed Um, yeah that was good yeah Last thing I'll say is this this ought to just make us more sympathetic and empathetic people. You know, maybe a recognition of our shared experience, a, a, a reminder even of it, ought to maybe help us to be a little bit more kind, a little bit more gentle, a little bit more understanding as we engage with people in, in real life, but especially on social media, that we don't know what people are going through. We don't know what people have experienced or what people will experience. And so um, just a recognition of like, you know, as they sing in high school musical, we're all in this together. Um, so, you know, maybe a, um, an attitude of, of, of Christ likeness being that, that gentle and lowly um, being compassionate would be, would go a long way in a lot of people's lives is all I'll say. But um, yeah, I will we'll close with a, a word of prayer uh, this one comes from the Valley of Vision. It's called Grace in Trials. I think it's pretty fitting given our, our topic today. So it says, Father of mercies, hear me for Jesus' sake. I am sinful even in my closest walk with thee. It is of thy mercy that I did not die long ago. Thy grace has given me faith in the cross by which thou hast reconciled thyself to me and me to thee, drawing me by thy great love reckoning me as innocent in Christ, though guilty in myself. Giver of all graces, I look to thee for strength to maintain them in me, for it is hard to practice what I believe. Strengthen me against temptations. My heart is an exhaust, sorry, my heart is an unexhausted fountain of sin, a river of corruption since childhood days, flowing on in every pattern of behavior. Thou hast disarmed me of the means in which I trusted, and I have no strength but in thee. Thou alone can hold back my evil ways, but without thy grace to sustain me I fall. Satan's darts quickly inflame me, and the shield that should quench them easily drops from my hand. Empower me against his wiles and assaults. Keep me sensible of my weakness and of my dependence upon thy strength. Let every trial teach me more of thy peace and more of thy love. Thy Holy Spirit is given to increase thy graces, and I cannot preserve or improve them unless he works continually in me. May he confirm my trust in thy promised help, and let me walk humbly in dependence upon thee for Jesus' sake. 
Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for sticking with us. If you've made it to the end of this episode of the Doxology Podcast, if you'd like to connect with us, hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at Doxology Podcast or shoot us an email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions, ideas for future episodes. You can also sign up for our newsletter. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget about our upcoming Instagram live on the 25th. That's two days. Technically, when this is dropping on the 23rd, it'll be two days away. So in two days, guys. Yep. 7 p.m. Central Time on the 25th, two days from if you're listening to this on the day it comes out two days from today and um don't forget also to enter our book giveaway uh details can be found on instagram and twitter in the pinned or top you know story uh posts that we have details on how to enter we that runs to the end of the month and then in the first week of march we will pick a winner so do get in on those things and uh be watching out for the Instagram live in a couple days. We hope to see you there and uh, wherever we see you. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace. Peace.